Hello and welcome to the first ever bonus episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. If this podcast series was an old filing cabinet, then each bonus episode would be a crisp £10 note, surreptitiously hidden between the folders and folders of dusty CBW history and bad jokes. Now today, I am very lucky to be speaking with our guest, Mike Kenner. Mike has dedicated a not insignificant number of years investigating open-air trials of biological weapon simulants over the green and pleasant land that is Blighty. What we are talking about today, then, are attempts by the UK military to model potential adversary attacks on the UK during the paranoid years of the Cold War. This work occurred in the context of broader offensive and defensive programmes and, as we will hear, would culminate in environmental trials in which millions of people in the UK were unwittingly exposed to these experiments. These trials, then, are a good test case for understanding how ethical norms around such research are worked out and how they can evolve over time in response to political pressure. In the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, the world was quite a different place. States had stockpiled and developed deterrent chemical weapons and, to a lesser extent, biological weapon capabilities. In Europe, during World War II, for various reasons, but not least the threat of retaliation, these stocks laid unused. However, both types of weapon had been utilised by the Japanese in Manchuria, with horrifying consequences. In the UK, the use by Japan of CW and BW, as well as the discovery of the extent of the German nerve agent programme, and hardening relations with the Soviets, as well as the absence of domestic nuclear deterrent in the immediate aftermath of the war, motivated an expansion of both defensive and offensive work in the area of CBW, justified in the early days in terms of a need for a strategic WMD deterrent, as well as for the capability for like-for-like retaliatory response to the Soviet use of these weapons. In this context, the UK collaborated closely with the US and Canada on the issue of chemical and biological warfare and defence. Much of the UK's work centred on field trials of numerous weapon agents. First, at remote sites in the UK, such as Port and Down, and Gernard Island off the west coast of Scotland, later referred to as Anthrax Island. Later, the UK would also engage in much larger so-called hot trials at sea, involving live agents in various remote and exotic places, all of which, of course, occurred largely without the public knowing about them. This broader context forms the backdrop of this bonus episode, which is in fact the first of a two-parter. In this episode, we focus on the work carried out by scientists from Port and Down up until the mid-1960s, which involved the spread of zinc cadmium sulphide over vast swathes of the UK. In part two, we trace this history further into the 60s and 70s and look at large area simulant trials involving bacteria such as E. coli. This would come to be referred in the press years later as the Lyme Bay Trials. In the second show, we will take a deeper dive not only into what these trials involved, but also the political fallout of this work as it came to broader public attention from the 1990s onwards. In particular, we will focus on inquiries which decades on reviewed safety practices at the time and considered what risks the public might have unwittingly been exposed to. Now, if you happen to pick up any major history of UK biological warfare written in the past decade or so, it's very likely you'll see Mike acknowledged, and his investigations have provided a factual basis for numerous documentaries. As ever, you can find links to these, as well as other information, in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the show today. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, very cold day, but it's, a, it's an ideal during warfare weather, so this is when they did the trials. <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a good opportunity to uh, discuss this extensive subject. Exactly right. For context, uh, Mike and I both are currently recording in very different parts of the southwest of England. And as we will find out, we have more in common than we would perhaps like to as far as the history of biological and chemical warfare is concerned. So for some people listening today, what we're talking about might be a little bit esoteric. So I thought it might be useful just at the top of the show if you could give us a kind of back of an envelope description of what is meant by biological weapons simulant trial. In my mind, a BW simulant is a supposedly harmless substance which mimics the physical properties of a real biological warfare agent without causing any adverse health effects. That's what it's meant to be. 
It's often used in public area uh, BW experiments, which by their very nature prohibit the dissemination of a disease causing agent. The typical BW simulant, it can be a chemical compound such as uh, port and use zinc cadmium sulfide extensively, or it can be a bacterium such as E. coli or Bacillus glibigii, both of which were, were used by Port and Dan, as we'll discover later. Uh, whether you use a chemical or, or a bacterium, the ideal simulant particle size is identical to that of a real biological warfare agent. And this is the, the most important part of it, I think. It's normally between one and six microns in size. That's the mean sort of like definition, anywhere in between there or, or fit in with what uh, Porton are normally looking for. This size, unfortunately, enables what the real agent does, how it gains access to the body. So it enables a, a biological warfare particle, including simulants, to evade the body's natural defenses, penetrate deep into the lungs, right into the alveoli. I wondered if you were happy to talk about how you ended up looking at such a kind of niche aspect of a niche topic area. Yeah, I mean, you could remember I, I'm a child of the late 60s. I, I left school in 1970. So there was a great deal of attention into war planning at the time. Cold War was was raging. You had the Vietnam War going on. Um, you had the Vietnam War protests going on. You'd had CND throughout the 60s. So there were books starting to appear on the horizon, which talked about biological warfare. And, and notably, most notably, was Seymour Hersh. Uh, he brought one out in the late 60s, which was sort of like the Bible at the time. No one knew very much about it. Porton Down only really admitted that they had a biological warfare section although they prefer to call it the microbiological research establishment. It's around about 1966-67. The public opprobrium was so much that they had to open up in 68 and have open days. With that background in mind, I started work as a post office engineer's apprentice, 1970. In 1971, I was uh, put on the main distribution frame as part of your, your duties as your training. You do so many months. And I was working on the MDF. You have to, you get things called advice notes come through. And basically it's com connecting the exchange equipment to the customer's line. And on the advice note, it said fleet, sea barn farm fleet or crown land fleet. And it said microbiological research establishment. And alarm bells started ringing in my head then. I thought, hang on a minute. I, I've read Seymour's book. He does a small chapter in there and it says that our germ warfare uh, facility in this country is called the very same. So I went and had a, a word at the end of the day with my, my boss, a senior chap that was there who happened to also be my father. It sounds like nepotism. It wasn't. It didn't work out well for either of us. <laughs> um, anyway, I went and had a word and I said, I see the germ warfare boys are down in, uh, in Weymouth. And he sort of like, he, Dad used to do a lot of uh, defence communications work, and he just put on his defence communications face, and uh, sort of like an instant denial. Oh, are they, my son? He said. And with that, that was it. So I went in the next day, and all uh, DP records, uh, distribution point records, are written in pencil. And I went there, and it had been rubbed out. <laughs> so that that was gone. So that's when I first knew, 1971. And I, had, I used to creep around the area every now and then just to see if we could see anyone. When I was a child, I remember uh, seeing a, what appeared to be a barrage balloon above it, above this area, but didn't think too much about it. We move on really to the mid-1990s. There was a cluster of childhood leukemias on the fleet. They, they stretch from White Regis going up to sort of Bexington Way, all the way up the fleet. Um, for those who don't know, the fleet is a body of water that separates the Chesil Bank, as geographers like to call it, or Chesil Beach, if you're a local, from the mainland. It's sort of like a, a, a seawater lagoon. I was talking to a couple of people who knew the families that were involved, and I thought, hang on a minute, we've got a German warfare base. Standards were appalling in those days. They would have just flushed anything they were using straight into the sea. 
all the women that I knew that had been had, had children affected by it had been swimming in the sea. They liked what is now known as wild swimming. So I thought, oh, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Is there a link? So I talked to the uh, the families, and one of the families phoned up the Ministry of Defence to ask. And curiously, they got a response, and uh, a senior army, I think he was a colonel, came down to the nearby Chickwell camp and interviewed you know, talk to them and said, well, I've talked to the chaps at Porton Down and they do say that, yes, they did ha operate out stations, as they called them in those days. Maybe this is one of them, but I can assure you nothing happened. Long story short, I was involved in uh, an environmental protest that was going on at the time. And through that, the local television company came down and wanted to do an interview. And I happened to mention in passing and they covered this, but they didn't get anywhere. That was 1995. Roll on to 1997, uh, February the 2nd. Uh, I know that because it was my father's birthday. And the Sunday Telegraph published their groundbreaking article. It was Andrew Gilligan and Rob Evans, which announced that I think it was 12 or 13 experiments have been done in this area that involved the release of live bacteria, a, a lot of them. And that's from there. I contacted initially Ken Livingstone because he was the MP quoted. He put me on to Rob Evans. I talked to Rob Evans and the rest is history. So, Mike, reading your work, you tend to distinguish between two major time periods in trials you've looked at. The first period that we're going to look at today's show is between roughly 52 and 64. And this is large area field trials. Is that right? Yes, it was basically it started off small. But the, what happened is in um, 1949, the senior meteorologist at uh, Porton Down, a chap called Anderson, was doing a series of experiments in Salisbury. He got permission to do this from the local authorities purely because he told them that he was investigating smoke pollution. Uh, they were very enthusiastic and, and allowed him to go to an area which was quite aptly known as Gas Lane. And he was conducting experiments there in reality to work out munitions expenditure for a cluster chemical weapons bomb. So he did these experiments and, and as he did them and the results were coming through by about 1952, he'd done other, you know, the, the series of trials over the years were coming to an end in Salisbury. He concluded that there was a, a case for long distance travel of chemical and biological warfare. And he produced a, a paper on this subject, the long distance travel. This went to many different departments and uh, quite high up in Whitehall and all those various little small clandestine committees that the Ministry of Defence had at the time. And it received support all the way through. So round about by 1952, the start of 1953, they started doing very, very small trials. First, they had to work out what, what uh, are we going to use as a BW simulant for this. They By this time, they'd moved over. They realised it, it wouldn't be a chemical warfare uh, thing, the long distance of travel, because they didn't have an agent at the time that would be capable of doing long distance travel. So it was purely a biological warfare thing. So they moved over and they decided to do what the Americans have been doing and using a substance um, which they refer to always as FP, fluorescent particles. It sounds nicer than using the, the, the word cadmium. The FP was zinc cadmium sulfide, as we know. And that the thing about why it was used is that you could spray it. It would travel a certain distance. You could uh, sample it, and the early samplers were just a piece of basically sellotape <laughs> with a, um, a vacuum on it that would draw in any of the air around, and hopefully the particles would stick to the sellotape. And that's very crude of me to say that, but that, that's roughly yeah. what it was. Either that or they'd use slides that were covered with some sort of sticky substance, and the same thing would happen. Then afterwards, what they do is they take them to a dark room. They shine a UV light on them. With a microscope, they count the particles on there. It was that crude. It relied totally on the ability of people uh, not to get fatigued in doing this to get an accurate count. It, it, it had so many variables. An accurate count is not possible. And they didn't really, they weren't really looking for an accurate count at the time. They just wanted to know will this travel from A to B? If it does, 
if we can measure the concentration, that's good. If if that's a bit debatable, it doesn't matter as long as we get a rough idea. So they started these trials in RAF Bewley in 1953. Very crude. Land Rover had a what they call a Stanford generator because Stanford University pioneered this. Mounted on the back, they'd hand pull the stuff in. Presumably, it turns out they were all wearing protective gear when they did this. And they were measuring over quite short distances. And then they expanded on this. They they were using at the time something called a cascade impactor. Then they thought, well, hang on a minute. Let's see how far out we can get this. So they started venturing further afield with their sampling position. And there was one trial that was carried out, 27th of April, 1954. A Land Rover was based on the Porton Range. It was firing at 51 grams a minute. So three, three kilograms were used in total of zinc cadmium sulfide. And they set up sampling arcs 25 and 50 miles away in an area from Blandford to south of Warminster and from near Portisham in, in uh, Dorset to Castle Carey in Somerset. Picked up the, the material. Cloud went clean through the 25 mile arc and reached the 50 mile arc. So on the basis of this, they thought, well, hang on a minute. Let's see if we can extend this. And what they decided to do was mount it on a, this time they'd always been point sources, i.e. there would be a static source. It didn't move. The samplers, if they moved, they, they moved around to try and find the cloud. This time they thought we'll have static samplers and we'll, we'll actually do a line source. We'll have a vehicle driving along spraying out zinc cadmium sulfide all the time and we'll see how far that goes does that work you can see them gradually building up i mean it was it was apart from the dangers that involved to the general public you can see yes it makes sense we've started yes we can do it from a point source we can get it a couple of miles we've got it up to 50 miles now we're going to see what happens if we drive and do it and they did it and they got exactly the same results and i mean they started spraying anywhere dorset in the south of england obviously Hampshire, parts of Somerset and Wiltshire, they all get it because they're all very close to Portland Down. If you live within a budgetary distance that makes it economical to do a trial at Portland Down, they're going to do one near you. They tended to veer more towards the west because the, the winds were more coming from the west, so predominantly southwesterly winds. So that helped them later on that they could do the actual trials spraying in Dorset and sit on the Portland Range and try and catch a cloud. And just for our international listeners, so it's fair to say that Wiltshire in the southwest is quite rural, but at the same yes. time, the towns and cities are still towns and cities and are just significant populations. And I guess we'll talk a little bit about some of the population numbers that were potentially exposed later on. Port in itself is very isolated. It's still quite hard to find. But when you're dealing with area trials of this scale, you're very quickly exposing large numbers of people because of the fact that Absolutely. This whole part of, the, part of the country. The thing about Porton and, uh, and Dorset in particular is quite uh, interesting. It, when they were setting up Porton, they, they were also thinking of setting up a place where it was nice and remote where they could experiment with the early tanks. And they did, Porton did initially come down to the Lulworth area. And they were looking to see if that was suitable to build the initial place for, uh, for doing gas warfare and for experimenting on it. So Dorset had a lucky escape in some ways, but, but Porton still found them in the 60s. Right? <laughs> um, in the end, the tank, as, as we know, the, the uh, tank research was then carried out at Lulworth and Bobbington in that area, and Porton decided to move up near Amesbury where they are. The, the, I think it was the fact that, that on a map, it appears that it's so rural, that Porton felt that they could do these trials. There's later trials, which I'll come into, um, where they know that they really they should be sampling in London, but they won't put the sampling units in there. They say, really, we, you know, we, we had to put the sampling units on the edges of London because, no, <laughs> if word had got out that Porton were actually admitting that the cloud was in there, there would have been a little bit of a public outcry. The cloud still went into London. It's just that there were no overt signs of having men walking around with Wellington boots with CDEE written on them. <laughs> um, 
so yes they were very they make out that that, that um they were how can i put it uh graydon carter covers it i don't know whether you want to go into that now but graydon carter covers it quite well when he examined for the ministry of defense in 1999 2000 right about that period he was tasked by them to go over the history to collate all the documents that still existed uh, about the zinc cadmium sulfide trials this is in response to rob evans article many local articles me phoning them up every five minutes saying what have you been <laughs> up to this week he could not find any documentation at all that Porton showed any concern whatsoever that they were going to be spraying this material over populated areas, even though they also knew that they had never subjected uh, zinc cadmium sulfide for toxicity trials prior to doing this. And he does quite a bit of his, his uh, report relates to this. Essentially, there's no evidence that the toxicity of zinc cadmium sulfide was identified in any practical way by CDE. So the public weren't weren't part of the plan. So, Mike, as I understand it, in the early years, you had Port and Down who were doing various types of trials in the UK and abroad. And during the kind of immediate post-war period, they got very interested in modelling potential biological weapon attacks and how we potentially move around. And as part of this, they developed a preferred method for looking at the movement of clouds of particulates. And zinc cadmium was their preferred simulant. But at this point, they weren't sure of toxicity of this particular simulant. But for whatever reason, decisions made at this point in history seem to have continued to inform thinking and decision making several no, decades later. So the direction of movement was established in the kind of 50s. And then they continue to build their policy in that way. Moving then towards the kind of later 1950s, what was the kind of main work happening at Porton late 50s onwards? I, I think that, yeah, the, the, the major change came through in 1957 when there had been talk building up in the tripartite meetings that, that used to occur between Canada, America and the UK. The large area coverage concept kept popping up and then going back down again. The Americans thought that there were too many meteorological reasons for the large area coverage concept not to work. They also didn't think that bacteria could survive a long distance travel. So they, they weren't sure. But by 1956, Porton had put pay to all that. And 57, they produced a paper and it was a joint paper between the various branches of Porton down, the chemical weapons side and the biological weapons side and they brought forward something which is basically known as the large area coverage concept the paper contrasted the older tactical method of bw attack by using bombs or cluster munitions with a strategic method of covering an enormous area with very very little amount of suspension needed bacterial suspension needed the say one aircraft bomb load could probably cover an area of 30 square miles, but the potential of the uh, large area coverage concept, and I better explain what that is, that involved yeah. a, a standoff attack, normally offshore. In, in the case of uh, like the UK, it would be an aircraft or a ship or even, I don't think they had them at the time, but a, a cruise missile that was capable of it anyway, that would go down the coastline spraying all the time. The air movement would be carried on shore and this would contaminate the whole country. Now, what Porton approved that the only factor which would make this impractical was biological decay. And they had been working and finding out that no, actually, that we, we have got some bacteria potential BW agents that could survive very long distances of travel, presumably as long as they're only done in, in hours of darkness. But you can cover a large area in, in 10 hours, especially if you do it in the winter months. The other thing is that they managed to prove to the United States that, no, actually, there's at least 50 times a year that Britain is wide open to an LAC attack. So Portland were good. They were could be accused of being empire building a bit. They not only showed that we 
should we change our policy and decide to use it for offensive methods? It's feasible. So that opens up a line of research and research funding. But also the UK is extremely vulnerable to this. Oh my God, we better do something immediately and investigate how great is the danger to the UK. So there were two aspects of funding could come flying through off of this paper and it worked. So just to talk a little bit about the scenario now for the podcast listeners, we are both sat currently basking in glorious winter sunshine. So it's uh, bright, but very, very cold. So would today be too sunny for a successful similar trial, do you think? That's a problem because later on they did develop a substance that would protect bacteria from the sunlight. Really? that, That happens in the late 60s, yes. Ah, so in the early days, the idea was that they the, the conditions. It would always be nighttime. Nighttime. <clears throat> well, they had two times that that they really liked, and um, meteorologically, and that would be dusk and dawn, basically. I think you can safely say that that biological warfare attacks were going to be nighttime. That's what they assumed back in the fifties and the early sixties. What they were mainly worried about was pollution. You add too much air pollution, that might affect what's going on. It might affect the viability of any organism. Um, it did cause problems with them trying to do accurate counts. And that's a problem that we have. When we move on to the, after the large area coverage paper was produced by MRE, they start doing very big trials indeed. We've moved away from Land Rovers now. We've moved into converting Hastings or Valletta aircraft. They'd fly 200, 100, 200, maybe a 300 mile track. They'd either come down the north coast, it would always be in the sea, down the north coast and along the channel or along the channel and up the Irish Sea. The target was always England and Wales, never Scotland. I haven't found out why. I'd imagine that it's so remote that getting sampling units up there is, is, is quite tough. They involved, oh, 60, 70 sampling stations across the country. They use Ministry of Supply out stations. They use RAF stations. Even the United States Air Force were involved. They had sampling units set up. And Port and Dan themselves would have a team of nine to ten mobile sampling teams. So um, They were sort of, I imagine, more like troubleshooters. They could go to an area where that wasn't covered by the out stations or like I say, they, they were troubleshooters insofar as when they sprayed the cloud, they might have got an indication that the wind shifted. And we haven't got a sampling station there and they'd fire off uh, a port and mobile sampling team. And basically men in a Land Rover wearing duffel coats operating uh, what is known as a drum impactor, which is um, it's a unit that measures as the air is drawn in through a vacuum. It goes onto this sticky substance and then it clicks around. It's clockwork, I believe. And it moves around in in five minute increments and then they can tell they can watch in the laboratory then the arrival of the cloud and the cloud leaving. So they see what sticks to the. uh, Yeah, I mean, a very similar principle was used um, later on for the biological warfare trials that use live bacteria. So is there stories in the early years of local people seeing or suspecting things going on? I mean, or is it something that sort of appeared under the radar? In in the very early years, um, funny enough, you see, I just better explain to everybody that in the in the grand scheme of things, the discovery of the series of trials, the zinc cadmium trials, were the last trials that we managed to get important to declassify. So so we sort of do the whole thing backwards. The investigation came from the biological bacterial trials to the zinc cadmium sulfide trials, and we work our way right back to Anderson in Gas Lane in Salisbury. And there was a witness, uh, I think she was six or seven, and she, <clears throat> Rob Evans, did a lot of work on this and a marvelous book he brought out called Gast. I'd recommend anyone to read that. And there's a segment in it, uh, Clouds of Deceit, and it covers the early years of these trials. More trials came to light after his book was published, but in response to his book, uh, a woman wrote to him. And her name was was Enid Forrester Addy. And she was a delightful woman. And Rob said, have you ever heard of her? I said, I don't know. I'll I'll, I'll call her up. I'll see if I can track her down. And Enid was was marvellous. And she remembered being a small child in Gas Lane. And what she remembered is that these men came round wearing duffel coats. 
and putting what she saw were gas meters, old fashioned gas meters and chaining them to lampposts and then going around. And then afterwards, there would be this strange smell of like gravy in the air. All she remembers vividly, it was a policeman carting away one of the, uh, uh, someone who'd stolen one of these and was trying to take it down the scrapyard. <laughs> and there was a great fuss that was going on. They had to break into the chap's house and take it away. And and she, I said to her, is there anyone else who could witness this? And she said, yes, it was a little boy I played with. So I went and she gave me his telephone number. She said he still lives in the area. So I phoned the chap up and I said, uh, I've been told that you witnessed these, these trials. Did you know what was happening? He said, no, I didn't, but I, I do remember it. He said, strenching it, he said, as I worked with Porton down later on. I said, oh, what did you do? He said, um, oh, they had a special aircraft and I flew it. And this was the pilot of the icing tanker aircraft, which we'll get to another time. <laughs> yes, people did see things, especially with the later trials, which I'll tell you, the, it's a lovely story with the, um, the Lime Bay trials. But um, no, in the main, what happened is that Porton were always told, if anyone asks you what's going on, we're investigating air pollution. What they forgot to mention was that they were the ones causing the pollution. I mean, Graydon Carter, he mentions it, and I think it almost passes for humour in Porton Down. You know, that's what we're doing. He wasn't. He was investigating how to um, conduct small-scale biological warfare over an area greater than 1,000 square miles. So at the moment, then, we're currently, we're just coming out of kind of this period 57, 1960. And so... It's clear here that we've already come a far away from the back of Land Rovers in terms of the type of work that's been done and the distances that have been covered. You noted that, you know, people were being exposed to this stuff. And as a side note, by the way, we're going to be sharing some of the materials we've talked about today for people to go and read further on, particularly things like health concerns around certain agents and, those, and certain stimulants and those sorts of things. So we'll post those um, in the discussion notes for the for the podcast. So one thing that I was particularly interested in as someone who was uh, local to the southwest was discussion of cities and the fact that there was work focusing specifically on Norwich and Salisbury. I was very surprised this hadn't come up at least as a disinformation line in certain coverage. So could you maybe talk a little bit about the kind of maybe the role that some of these cities played? Yes, absolutely. Salisbury was, I mean, Salisbury was used normally, um, I think initially. You've got to remember, everything is down to budget with Porton Down. So if they could do it on the cheap, they do it on the cheap, obviously. Um, that's the reason that they selected zinc cadmium sulfide. It was so cheap, um, comparatively cheap. So they decided that as a moving on from the large area, coverage trials they thought well what would happen if we hit a city with it with one of these large area coverage trials we know we can spread it to a city but what happens in the city and in particular they were interested to see whether the heat from the city generated at night would enable or prevent the cloud from coming down and then being inhaled by people so they decided to use a city and they picked on salisbury and, and it's quite remarkable. I've I've got a, a grid which um, I will share with you, and I'll try and put it up on my Twitter feed later. They they established a, a remarkable grid around Salisbury. It was mainly it was rural, so it was quite a large rural grid. I forget how far away the sampling units were, but you can say they're two or three miles apart. And then in the centre of Salisbury, there were a number of urban sampling points again on the grid. An aircraft would fly about 40 miles away to the west. They were relying on the southwesterly wind coming up, flying at about a thousand feet. Sometimes they used to do it lower, but normally about a thousand feet. And it sprayed a hundred mile arc. I think I think it was a hundred mile. They'd wait for the wind to come through. You get early warning from the rural pickets. They set up a mobile darkroom. So you could get early warning of the cloud. It's coming in. OK, make sure everyone's on their toes. They involved the Salisbury police. 
So the mobile dark room, this is still, is this to do with the drum sampling you were talking about earlier yeah, on? Yeah, what, what they had is cascade impactors and drum samplers. What are these? Basically a bit of sticky that's lying there flat and a bit of sticky that's on a drum. Okay, okay, you can either put a vacuum behind it or you don't, but I mean, yeah. you normally put a vacuum behind it, that will suck in at a specific rate. So I think they normally sucked in people at rest. Uh, 10 litres a minute. Yes, yeah. really, it should be about 20. Oh, so it was actually simulating the. Oh, it the, was simulating, yeah. yeah. Everything yeah. important, though, for those sampling units like that, the aspiration rate is normally aimed at what would a human being be doing? So you oh, can see yeah. it's not purely defensive trials, is it? If we're getting <laughs> to this, it's not purely Met Office trials. So, yes, they were imitating a, a human lung, the breathing rate. So, anyway, they, they'd uh, get these early samples from the pickets and rush them down as the cloud arrived yet yeah, don't know don't know it's a slow process it, 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 you just gotta wait and you've got this zinc cadmium sulfide cloud bobbling along across somerset across wheelchair they sprayed bath when they did this so some of it would have fallen out on bath and bristol and it covered the entire wheelchair countryside part of somerset got to salisbury and of course that's where sampling stops because porton have got this idea that they like to promote that wherever the sampling units are, the cloud fell out the sky. <laughs> but obviously the cloud just went straight on towards London, the home counties. They'd rush the samples back. They'd analyze the samples. It would take quite a while, I'd imagine. And then they conduct another trial again. If you have to conduct at least two of these trials because you, you might get different results each time. You know, you don't do one trial. You can't base anything on that. Now, the problem that we have with that is that they never produced a trials report for it. All that we know that it took place is that we've got the trials instructions, and that's Porton Program 1760. Uh, we know they took place. It took place in August 1960. We don't know how many. Normally, there will be a series of five or six, up to ten. Well, why no trials report? Well, it turns out that Salisbury wasn't the ideal place to go. I don't know if you've been there, but there are hills. So the, there's hills, goes down to the river and the the, um, the cathedral and whatever, and it's, it's a bit lumpy. So the topography wasn't ideal. They were trying to do it on the cheap. And, and when I say do it on the cheap, not really. I mean, can you imagine you've got the whole of the city of Salisbury police involved in this? You've got the Home Office Scientific Advisors. They've turned up for it. Uh, to act as samplers, and they also wanted a bit of um, the research results, obviously. They want to find out things for civil defence purposes. Um, you've got the RAF, you've got, you know, you've got all the sampling units. It, it's, it's quite an expensive thing. They did this a number of times, failure. They call it inconclusive, but I mean, it was a failure. So they licked their wounds and left it at that for a while. And then in 1963, for some reason, I don't know why, they decided to resurrect this investigation. And this time they thought, well, let's look for somewhere flat. And um, I always think of Porton sometimes is, is like um, the Eye of Mordor. They turned their eye on East Anglia <laughs> and they selected um, sort of like Norwich as the Shire. And they thought, that's, that's nice and flat. So 1963, they, they came along and they repeated the experiment, probably even bigger. Home Office involvement was very extensive in this. The local policemen were employed as, as actual sampling operators. A lot of the urban sampling points were actually police houses. And they had them set up in their gardens. And they did at least two trials in 1963. But I think that there's probably more than that. But they only produced one trials report. It was inconclusive, but they at least they produced a report and the results were inconclusive. So the following year, they decided to do a load more. Unfortunately, they they never bothered with producing anything to do with it. I don't know if it coincided with the sudden emphasis to move away from what happens there and the money was more heading towards the MRE and their experiments with the Lyme Bay trials. And I think that the feeling was, look, we know it reaches this area. We know we can contaminate 21, uh, 28 million people just by one aircraft flying. If that had been something like Tudorensis, 
you you would have incapacitated maybe half of those. So for context, of course, in in this period we're talking about the the UK elements of the UK defence establishment were worried that the Soviets basically were developing weapon systems and were concerned about the prospect of a Soviet attack. And this is this is part of justification. That's, that they that's a narrative. I haven't yeah. found any evidence that the MOD really thought that. So at the same time, they were also these were also part of the sort of justifications for them continuing defensive work. And these questions of defensive and offensive work were always fundamentally intertwined anyway. They're essentially no, that, that, yes, it's a political term, offensive, defensive. It's it's just uh, these these scientists who say, um, oh, it was defensive work. They would have done offensive work in a heartbeat. They they wouldn't have just given up their entire career and said, no, I'm going home now. We've gone offensive. Because I remember reading a little bit about this, actually. You mentioned scientific careers. So there's been a couple of, of histories of Porton produced. You've mentioned a couple of them in, in the discussion so far. One thing I think I read Ulf Schmidt's history, as well as um, Brian Barmer, and they both mentioned this idea that the big problem for Porton scientists were that if they, once they were in, their career was very much tied to Porton because they weren't generally publishing in the open literature to the extent that their competitors there were so and the areas they were looking at were often very niche so I mean Tularensis wasn't necessarily something you'd be looking at unless you had a biodefensive or bioffensive program in mind so a lot of these scientists seem to have become bound to these institutions and so you can see perhaps why they ended up going down some particularly often quite esoteric directions with some of these larger projects yes. because they really had nowhere to go. I mean, in terms of what they were looking at and where they where they might have gone to do other work. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to understand what it was like there. I have talked to uh, one scientist's wife. He died, unfortunately, um, and his, his family blamed the Lyme Bay trials for being part of that. I did talk to the wife of a scientist um, who worked for MRE and she described life at the time and she just she said it was just so normal and that the block that they lived on were houses supplied by Porton Down. We have it down here. We we have Admiralty houses for the Admiralty underwater weapons establishment. So she used to make him his sandwiches in greaseproof paper, pack them up in little box, give him his thermos. He put his duffel coat on, like they all did, all always had duffel coats. And he'd walk off down and go to work and they do some really horrible things. And then come back as though life was normal. But it was a very hierarchical system and it was very much dead men's shoes for your promotion. If you were in the lower, very low ranks, not the non-scientific ranks, you could get promotion. And in fact, there is one important scientist who used to encourage this. Uh, he's the man who did the Lyme Bay trials. Um, but he was very good insofar as he saw the potential in people, didn't care who they were, and tried to, to raise them up. But in the scientific world, it was dog eat dog. And you were kept very much in your place, I think. It, you were put in your box. You were told, that's what you're doing today. You could be a, a, quite a major scientist, but today you're going to make up some Petri dishes for us, just like a lab worker. They worked extensive hours as well. They, they weren't just nine to fivers. They, when they were out doing field trials, it was, I don't think they got paid overtime or anything. And this was, of course, an ongoing problem for Porton Down throughout its history, as I understand it. So recruiting people, recruiting scientists, even very joined difficult. Them, very difficult, and particularly because then there was often negotiations with scientists. Did they take, become a military, member of the military or did they maintain their civil, civilian status because that affected how they could publish? Then you had, of course, an issue we'll perhaps get into in another podcast, but they also were continually seeking out, well, early stages, they weren't necessarily getting volunteers, but later on, they was, it was a struggle to seek out volunteers for certain types of work as well at Portland yeah. Down, which is, again, something else. If people are interested in that, they can look at Rob, uh, Rob Evans's uh, book, which is a great place to start, at looking at the history of the kind of human experimentation side, which we can't get into today. But I mean, this is something I think these these institutional histories are really fascinating because it is, as you say, it's people living their lives and working in these big institutions. And it's also interesting that these institutions seem to often have their own kind of momentum. And it strikes me that the history you're telling here, tracking through, very often it's 
things that become established immediately after the Second World War. Yeah. And then becomes a kind of it has an incremental effect on the directions the project I, go later I, on. I think that the the 90, especially the early 50s work. I mean, we, we imagine that, OK, it's the end of the Second World War. That's it. Um, no, of course, the Second World War in people's minds went on for 20, 30 years. If they'd worked as a scientist at Porton Down during the Second World War, definitely through the 50s, they probably adopted the same techniques, took the same risks. They were taking wartime risks with people and themselves um, that you wouldn't otherwise take. And then, unfortunately, with Porton, that became endemic. That, that became part of the norm. So the standards, I mean, it's not like that now. I will say that that completely changed. The difference in the last 25 years in attitudes has completely changed. When I first came across Porton Down, um, they were very much on the back foot, very much on the defensive, terrified to open up anything about what they'd done because they didn't know what the consequences would be. And of course, if we go over to your YouTube channel, you have managed to get uh, various videos and documentaries related to Port and Down and the trials, which yes. I I can't get over how. So some of them are, let's be frank. I mean, they're pretty spooky. I mean, they have they, you've got folks walking around with masks and trials, but other stuff is also more. There's like a really good, um, like a Porton produced documentary on Port and Down. That was the Porton is... propaganda produced for the Open Day. <laughs> now the funny thing is, is in there is an animation they did of a ship doing a large area coverage trial. And you can see a ship sailing around the coast. And then little animated bodies crudely falling over on shore. Now, at the time, the zinc cadmium sulfide, long, large area coverage travel, was meant to be classified. But they put this on there to try and persuade the public, look, look, if it wasn't for us, this, this, this will be happening. But which was totally untrue. Uh, Port never managed to develop anything that would prevent a large area coverage attack or even warn us or identify what was coming and none of that we'll find out later none of that ever worked so all of this stuff actually apart from the meteorological reason was a total waste of time but they didn't know that that's the whole thing about doing a scientific experiment even a, a total waste of time is a result you've realized no it can't be done and, and I think that's fascinating as well. So the other leg of work occurring in this period was were stuff that you don't focus on, but stuff that we, I brushed upon in my reading and that we will likely certainly cover in depth in later episodes is the biological agent trials, usually remote places out to sea. And yeah. here there was often this tension between good scientific practice yeah. and getting results and the practicalities of doing it and whether or not Often these things, when they're initially carried out, there's a risk that they'll go well. There's a scientific benefit yeah. to carrying it out. But very often we see where they don't get the results they want no, because it's, not, it's, science, you know, it's no, I mean, these things are experiments. Yeah, you have to bear in mind that, I mean, Porton were probably at the cutting edge of what they were doing. It's just that what they were doing to us now appears to be very crude. Yeah. Um, the, the, I think they were under tremendous pressure as well, just to maintain their existence. CDEE, the chemical warfare side of things, I don't think they were in much danger of being closed. But the microbiological side was, so they always had to produce a reason for their existence. And the chap in charge, who was second in command at the Grunard anthrax trials in the, in the war, a chap called Henderson, was always desperate to try and push forward. Yeah, because it was his baby. He was chief superintendent of, of the MRD, as it was, and became director when it was given establishment status. Now, he always thought that biological warfare was its main role would be as a sabotage weapon. It's not like chemical warfare. The whole idea of biological warfare is that you do it covertly, that the enemy doesn't even know you've been. Finds it very hard to prove that you actually did anything. It would take up to three, four days for the results to come through. So an innocuous aircraft flying around, three or four days later, people start feeling ill. But by that time, everyone's forgotten. So he was keen on pushing that right the way up to the LAC when he saw his opportunity. He thought, hang on a minute, this is it. This could be an alternative. 
there was a great push to ban nuclear weapons at the time. If that had come true, if Britain hadn't done grapple and, and managed to prove they could do an H-bomb in 58, there might very well have been a ban. Um, at least it would have slowed down our effort. So we would have needed an alternative deterrent. And I suspect at the back of his mind was, well, here's a very cheap one. Biological warfare is very cheap once you manage to work out how to deliver it and how to prepare the, the agent, which is not as easy as people make out because Porton had a devil of a job making E. coli to use in the Lyme Bay trials. They nearly ended up using an opportunistic pathogen instead, but that's, that's something else. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of empire building going on. So I guess then that takes us up to... The Lime Bay trials. The idea will be that we're going to follow up this chat with a second show where we can yeah. come and focus on the Lime Bay trials. So for our international listeners, where is Lime Bay? It sounds lovely. Do they make wine? And second, what were the trials? The Lime Bay trials is a name that's come up ever since they came out in the 90s. They used to be referred to various names, sea trials, trials at sea. It sprung up, I think, Possibly the media picked up on it. It was far better than what Porton Down wanted to call it, which was the Dorset Defence Trials, which is it was quite ingenuous, really disingenuous, because that sort of like seems to make out that, oh, it was only in Dorset and, <laughs> and we were defending against it. Whereas, no, you weren't. You were trying to find out how to do large scale biological warfare. So Lime Bay. We have the south coast of England. If you uh, if you come along towards the west from Dover, you come along about two thirds, you'll you'll notice a little small island attached to the mainland. That's called Portland. It's got an important navy base there. During this period, it was also home to the Admiralty Underwater Weapons Establishment, notorious for the Portland spy case that occurred in the early 60s. And next to it is a semicircular bay called Lime Bay. On the other side of Portland is a smaller bay, which is called Weymouth Bay. Portland decided to use these as an ideal place to lay down line sources of live bacteria. The reason being, it's only 50 miles from Portland, so it doesn't really hurt. We can get samples back if we needed to, to Portland down for overnight analysis. It wasn't that important, but that was a, f a factor in it. There was a ship that they could use. It was based at Portland Navy Base. So that was handy. And they could use virtually any wind direction. So they could just spray wherever they wanted in Lyme Bay or Weymouth Bay and then put the mobile sampling units, normally about five of them, in Land Rovers. And they go and try and get in the way of the cloud. And that is basically the principle for it. It differed in the amounts that they sprayed. Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful to, to speak to you uh, today, Mike. I've got a lot out of that. And if you are interested in the topics that have come up in today's show, you can find Mike on Twitter and you can find me on Twitter. And you could also you should check out uh, Mike's uh, YouTube channel, which is Experiments Are Us. Fantastic. We'll also post a link to that, um, which has got all these wonderful documentaries uh, which have been secured over the years. Are, are some of these your FOI requests? or They're, they're all FOI requests. Um, the, the vast majority are FOI requests. It's a couple that the IWM have kindly let me put up, but the majority, Operation Cauldron, etc. That's FOI. Well, thanks very much, Mike, and we'll uh, see you again soon on the show, no doubt, on the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>